Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for COVID-19 Conversations, powered by Rusk Rehabilitation. Today's topic will be program administration and infection control and prevention. Um, a group of faculty and staff battling the pandemic on the front lines of the epicenter of New York City will discuss important questions submitted by you and your colleagues from around the country. We're about to share our experience in a situation that remains fluid. Treatments and actions taken to date may change as we and others gain additional experience and as such should not be regarded as treatment guidelines. We hope to make it a little easier for you by sharing our journey. So as you all know, the COVID-19 situation is extremely rapidly evolving. And um, we went from the Rusk uh, rehabilitation went immediately um, had to close one of the units in Brooklyn, had to change the um, units, the um, acute rehab units in Manhattan to COVID negative, COVID positive. Steve, how did you manage all of this? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, Rusk really plays a vital role in, in the hospital and um, and we uh, felt that we needed to ensure that we were doing everything uh, we could to help the hospital uh, decant patients when necessary and to make uh, beds available should the need arise to uh, care for patients uh, in the hospital because we had such an influx. Uh, we had made an initial decision uh, to stop ex uh, accepting external admissions just to ensure that we could have enough beds in the hospital system to take care of internal patients. And then we also realized that there was going to be a tremendous need for acute uh, rehabilitation once these patients uh, began to recover. So we needed to make plans uh, to bring them into our working unit. It became very apparent to me and everybody uh, who is going to be on this call or this webinar tonight or today uh, that we needed to meet on a regular basis. Uh, so I had uh, brought together uh, the Rusk leadership team and we meet every day, uh, seven days a week, uh, beginning at 930 for as long as it takes to share updates, address what's happening in the hospital. And from a Rusk perspective, how best can Rusk address the needs of the patients with uh, COVID and the needs of the hospital to make sure um, that uh, we're helping them in the best way possible? So I know, Vincent and Jeff, you had to um, close your acute rehab unit in Brooklyn pretty quickly as the volume began to surge of COVID patients and you needed, um, the, the hospital needed beds. How did you manage that? You transferred them to Rusk, Manhattan, correct? Uh, yes. So we had discharge dates established for all of our patients. Uh, a fair number of them were not close to their discharge date. And essentially, in a matter of less than 24 hours, uh, we made determinations about accelerating discharges to home or moving the patients as part of a continuous inpatient rehab stay to uh, the rehab units in Manhattan. And that was all accomplished in, in less than a day. 
And then tell me a little bit about the units. I know, Jeff Cohn, you're running a medically complex unit. How did you transition from a medically complex unit to a, a, a unit with all of these COVID patients, some positive, some negative? You didn't know who was positive, who was negative. Well, because we admit transplant patients to our unit, it was very important for us to maintain COVID negative. And that's what we've actually been able to, to attain. Patients that come to our unit have to be checked for COVID status within 24 hours of admission to the unit. And, uh, and that's, that's what we've been doing. Actually, three of the patients that we did get from Brooklyn ultimately did turn up COVID positive. We quickly transferred them over to the Langone Orthopedic Hospital. But since then, we've been able to maintain a COVID negative status. We do the pre-admit testing for the COVID status. We're very careful about any visitors. There's no visitors allowed to our unit unless they're required for family training, and that's on the day of discharge. And when they come to our unit, the visitors, uh, we will check their temperature. We will ask them about any symptoms. We will ask them if they had any, had any contact with any COVID positive person. So we're very, very careful about maintaining the COVID negative status. And Kate, how did you manage your therapy staff? Because suddenly you had to, within a matter of hours, really send some people someplace, some people another place, you know, everybody needed a new job, everybody, how did you manage that? So really good question. Um, we had a lot of moving parts and a lot of tremendous need, which was wonderful that rust therapists could be used to a lot of their um, you know, unique uh, capabilities. Our first and foremost front line was to have enough therapists on the acute care service to manage ICU proning, general acute proning, all the bedside therapies that needed to happen. This patient population has a tremendous diversity of needs from physical, occupational, speech language pathology and their swallowing needs, uh, let alone turning and positioning to really help their respiratory status. On the acute rehab units, uh, as both Dr. Cohen and Dr. Fine have said, you know, COVID positive and COVID negative status, we spent a lot of time with our infection prevention and control team members, really helping people understand the PPE needs of the staff, uh, of the patients, how to best protect everybody to ensure that patients were aware of what, what they were going to be doing for their therapies and really try to maximize uh, their needs. But the staff really stretched themselves to every possible cornerstone of the medical center. And certainly Vincent and I partnered on a variety of initiatives that the staff had to go between campuses to make sure that the job was done. And I have to say the staff really rose to the occasion. It's, it's incredible what the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, the administrators, everybody, everybody just did what they had to do. Um, and it's still ongoing, of course. Monica, do you want to talk a little bit about what you had to do to um, manage all the, the personnel and change the, uh, where everybody was assigned to? Well, the ours was uh, more focused on the outpatient side and reassigning staff. I and mean, we had to ramp up specifically more for the virtual visits um, and planning for that and actually setting that up in Epic. Um, getting that to be turned on. Uh, we had to do training for the staff. Um, one of the things we had to do was reach back out to the patients that had been canceled to see if they would be interested in a virtual visit. And we've had a great response, but it took some time to get the staff up to speed. We then had to deploy many of them home, um, had to set that up so that they were able to answer the phones, be available to the patients and also be available to the physicians to support them from the outpatient 
and over time we've narrowed down how many days we're actually in clinic we actually see patients in the clinic and the rest of the time our physicians are out seeing virtual visits out for at home or in some of the office so that's what we had to do from an outpatient perspective how did the virtual visits go I think we've had a tremendous response. I think from all the physicians, what we've heard is the patients during this time were so grateful to be able to speak to their physicians, to be able to, you know, talk about their issues, but also to know that they cared. And, um, you know, if a virtual visit could not be done, we're actually doing telephone encounters just so that the patients know that they're, we're still there and we're still available. And we've had a great response. And I think the physicians have been felt very good about being able to reach out to their patients as well. So it sounds like the word is flexible. Everybody has to be flexible. Very flexible. And everyone has stepped up, everyone, you know, the staff, as you said, Lynn, the physicians, the staff, the residents are now are very engaged in the outpatients and helping with the virtual visits. We're doing a lot more, we're trying to ramp up our transitional care management visits from the inpatient side, um, which is an, another undertaking trying to get all of the patients on um, into my chart before they're discharged so that we can set up a virtual visit within seven to 14 days from discharge. So, but again, everyone's been tremendous and flexible and it's been great. I, and the system's been uh, the way to be able to be able to do as many epic, you know, epic visits in a day. I think the system's doing, you know, five, 6,000 a day now, which is a tremendous amount. And we don't have any, we've had no issues with epic during that time, which is pretty tremendous. That's great. How about from the resident's perspective, Daniel? I know that um, you've been working night and day, literally. Yes. Um, can you give us a resident's perspective on treating both COVID and non-COVID patients and, and how that affected your residency? Yeah, so on the HCC9 unit, which is our COVID negative unit, initially we were thinking that, you know, it's a COVID negative unit, so none of the patients have it. We wear surgical masks and use standard precautions. But after three patients on the unit ended up turning positive, I think we quickly learned to have a very like lower threshold for suspicion uh, that someone might have something, testing people much earlier than we um, otherwise would have because we had patients that had a heart transplant and immunocompromised status. We want to make sure that we're avoiding the potential exposure for those patients. Um, so kind of just learning to adapt to uh, the different uh, needs of the patients and as more and more came positive that changed. And how often did you test the patients to make sure that they remained negative? So if we had a patient that tested negative uh, but they had a known positive exposure they remained with contact droplet and eye precautions for 14 days. We only retested if there was a need based on new symptoms arising or a new exposure and I believe only one of those patients ended up being retested and it also remained negative. And then on the COVID positive um, unit, Kate, how did you manage the staff? How did they, um, because we know all these patients are positive, um, how were the patients treated? Did they treat individually or as a group? Did they go to the gym? So it was a very fluid process. When we first admitted our, um, the first COVID positive patient to our inpatient unit, we weren't quite sure how full the unit was going to get with COVID positive patients. So we partnered hand in hand with uh, infection prevention and control to really 
not only on a day-to-day basis, but several times a day to really understand um, precautions. Uh, so initially when the unit was opened with COVID positive patients, every patient was in a private room because the census was low. We were still learning. Um, every patient was treated in the room. The therapists wore gowns, gloves, masks, face shields, and patients were treated very intensely in their room but the intensity was only what they could tolerate. Again, even when these patients are medically stable to come to rehab, they're still very, very sick and their tolerance is different than any other patient I've ever seen. Certainly as we learned more and as the um, understanding of how we could protect the patients, being able to wear a face mask when they came out of the, the room, so they really could do therapy in the gyms, again, partnering with IPC, we were able to uh, not only cohort COVID positive patients together, but also to move patients to physical therapy and occupational therapy gyms, still maintaining social distancing, uh, still wiping down equipment in between usage uh, and working closely with housekeeping in terms of what the requirements were. Um, But it was clearly an evolution. The other thing that we did was the IPC team allowed seven of our therapists, who again had been outpatient therapists, to be part of an IPC support team So they were deployed to the rehab units and to the acute care units to be extenders to help with communication around donning and doffing of equipment uh, and really what the the guidelines were as they changed so rapidly. So it's been a very fluid process and we're still learning. And I'd like to comment also about the uh, personal protective equipment training that all staff received. All providers went under, uh, had fit testing to confirm that the N95 mask worked appropriately no PPE was wasted in that process because the N95 mask that was used for that testing was then provided to the uh, provider. And I think that was another important thing in terms of all providers uh, knowing how to safely and effectively don the uh, protective equipment. The other piece around the infection control precautions, uh, the current CDC guidance recommends that if a patient is seven days or more past their onset of symptoms, afebrile for three days and clinically improving, then those infection control precautions can be eased. I don't think we're adopting that practice just yet on the rehab unit. Patients continue to wear a surgical mask, not an N95 mask when they go into public areas, because there is evidence that wearing the surgical mask decreases the amount of viral shedding, even if the patient is coughing or uh, speaking loudly. And Vincent, um, now that you're in Brooklyn, so you had to quickly decant the unit, make it a medical unit. Now I understand that that's going back to going to be an acute rehab unit. How are you managing that? That's a good question. Uh, so I think what we first have to do is determine um, how many beds are we going to allow for COVID positive patients and how many we were going to allow for COVID negative patients and then determine where these patients are going to be on the unit so that we can protect both patients and staff to make sure there's no cross-infection that goes on. So we determined initially that since we're on a downward trend, that we would designate 12 beds to be COVID positive and 18 beds to be COVID negative. That may change as we go along. Then we had to figure out how we were going to separate the units. So we are installing edge guards on both sides of the unit because it's shaped like a uh, rectangle. So the edge guards would separate the COVID negative and COVID positive unit. 
We also are making uh, considerations that we know that there's going to be increased oxygen needs. So we're doubling up on the amount of oxygen that we usually store in the rehabilitation gym, uh, both for transportation purposes. And we might need, uh, some of these patients might be airborne precautions. So we're going to have some rooms designated as negative pressure rooms. We also had to test our staff to make sure that all our staff are negative so that the staff are not infecting patients. So there was a multitude of things that we're putting in place. And hopefully by the time we open up Wednesday, we will be in good shape to make sure that we service our patients appropriately. A lot of work in a very short period of time. So there's the acute rehab, and then there's also the aspect of the subacute rehab. Dr. Flanagan, I know you've been working on that. Can you tell us a little bit about treating uh, subacute rehabilitation patients? Yeah, that's another great question, Lynn. So the subacute rehab facilities uh, have a real challenge. Many patients converted from negative to positive in these facilities. And some, not all, I think that there are some uh, staffing challenges as well. So it's been a bit of a challenge. But we have a commitment to, to treat these patients. Um, and just like in the acute care hospitals, we are using uh, a whole host of uh, uh, PPE um, and doing what we need to do. If during uh, times when we are involved in meetings or uh, patient evaluation meetings, those are done um, remotely uh, so that we're not gathered with all the other therapists and nurses and what have you in a, in a small room. So that's been a help. But many of the patients that I see in the nursing home or in the subacute really have to be seen. Uh, many of these patients have intrathecal baclofen pumps. They need to be refilled, uh, whether they're COVID positive or negative. So we go and we see these folks. But it is a challenge. Uh, the therapists and the nurses, though, are, are, are doing a stellar job under very, very difficult uh, situations. But they need rehab just like everybody else does. And uh, the physiatry component of that, I think, has been uh, tremendously vital. Uh, we are seeing different types of uh, end organ uh, injury from the virus itself. And oftentimes it's the physician uh, in consultation with the nurses and the therapists that are identifying those problems and applying the appropriate rehabilitation treatments. And what do you think is going to be the need for rehabilitation once hopefully the curve starts to descend and um, patients are recovering from COVID? What do you see the role of the physiatrist, of the acute rehab unit, the subacute? Yeah, again, that's a great question. Um, there was an article in JAMA not that long ago uh, speaking to the tremendous need for post-acute care that COVID patients are going to require. Um, and, uh, and of course, that's what we do in rehabilitation. We provide that care. The type of care that we're going to be provided is in the typical uh, ERPS, what we're doing now uh, at Rusk, and they're going to, uh, you know, we're doing it uh, both in completely COVID positive units, mixed units. Can't forget though, those who are COVID negative uh, still need rehabilitation. That's why we have some beds uh, situated for that as well. But we also need that there's gonna know that there's gonna be a tremendous need for folks who are sent home. Many um, uh, folks who are recovering from COVID are still really quite ill. They're on oxygen, they're at home, they're debilitated. Um, I don't think that there's a, a field better um, than physical medicine and rehabilitation to treat these folks, to, to get them up, get them mobilized, uh, and get them back to 
uh, the type of function that they want to be at. So um, we are gearing up to provide those level of services. We are providing, uh, as you already uh, mentioned, um, virtual visits, physician visits. We're also providing virtual uh, therapy visits as well. And we anticipate that that is going to grow as time goes. And although the total number of patients entering the hospital is decreasing, the uh, COVID is a, is a fairly long illness. So we anticipate that the numbers of um, uh, patients who are going to be discharged in the community are going to grow. Uh, and there's going to be a tremendous need for uh, physiatric as well as rehabilitation treatment of these patients. And we all have to prepare for that. Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about um, infection control. And um, uh, Dr. Pham, can you tell us um, a little bit in, in your expertise, what do we as physicians, as therapists, as nurses, um, what do we need to do to protect ourselves and to protect our patients? Yes, that's a, uh, obviously a major concern with this uh, illness, uh, with this contagious disease. Uh, it is believed to be primarily droplet transmitted, but there uh, is a concern for those patients that we take care of who may be subject to what are known as aerosol generating procedures. And uh, uh, as we all know that there are many, many patients in rehab who undergo a variety of procedures that we may be considered at risk, whether it's uh, suctioning of patients who have tracheostomies. That population uh, is burgeoning now as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of patients, uh, as was already noted, uh, take a very, very long time to uh, regain their respiratory functions. So those patients uh, represent risk to other patients and to us as staff, in particular therapists and nurses, because of the uh, tremendous amount of physical contact. And then also, uh, we can't forget, of course, our speech language pathologists who basically uh, induce the patients to uh, cough and gag for about an hour at a time as a, as a normal part of uh, what they do to uh, try to uh, rehab these patients. So lots of folks are at risk. Uh, and again, uh, we always worry about our patients first, but we have to worry about ourselves and our colleagues as well. Luckily, it looks like the PPE really works. So in general, again, it, it is believed that for the most part, this is a droplet-borne disease, and that's why for the longest time, the CDC's guidelines and and the WHO's guidelines continue to do uh, that a surgical mask is probably sufficient in most situations. However, because of the concern about these aerosol-generating procedures, and that's why many institutions in the CDC have recommended that where N95 respirators are available, that they should be used. If for no other reason than that, uh, if you have an N95 on, then you don't have to stop at the door before going to the bedside to work with your patient to decide, oh, wait, is there going to be an aerosol-generating procedure that's involved with what I'm about to do? So as long as a person does that, as long as a person protects their eyes, and um, secondarily their N95 respirator with a face shield, then that's probably the, the major protection right there. And uh, the use of a gown uh, may further decrease risk as well. Of course, uh, the, the challenge for all healthcare institutions, not just in the New York metropolitan area, not just in the United States, but throughout the planet, is the uh, incredible burn rate of our PPE uh, and uh, the, the worldwide shortage of these materials, if for no other reason than that the manufacturers simply can't keep up with it. And that's an excellent reason to determine when patients are no longer need isolation. So how, because obviously if they don't need the isolation, you decrease the use of the PPE. 
How do you determine when a patient is no longer contagious? That's a great question. And unfortunately, a lot of the data are lacking for that. Uh, there are very, very limited studies where they've looked at uh, specifically viral culture, right? So looking for infectious material, infectious pathogen, as opposed to simply detecting a signal from a genetic assay, such as a PCR assay. Uh, what we do see, and I think everybody's taking care of some of these patients, patients who are clinically well, breathing well, no respiratory symptoms whatsoever, three to four, or sometimes even more weeks after their illness, and they're still PCR positive. And um, we do not know that uh, they actually have viable virus. And the very limited, and I, I want to stress that it is limited, this is not strong scientific evidence, the limited scientific evidence that is available suggests that they do not anymore. And uh, what you're detecting is that, uh, again, that genetic trace that often lingers, we know that that's true about other infectious diseases as well. Uh, a positive PCRS does not necessarily equate with um, actual infection, actual contagion still being present. So the guidance is based in part on the very limited studies that suggest that most of that uh, contagious material uh, is no longer around after somewhere between seven and 14 days. Nobody's quite sure. So the current guidance uh, is that uh, for uh, from the CDC and now from the New York State Department of Health uh, is that for patients who are clinically doing well, no fever for at least 72 hours without any use of antipyretics, uh, and at least 14 days out from their uh, initial illness, that uh, the likelihood that they are still contagious to other people is extraordinarily low. Uh, and so that's when we're starting to discuss whether patients uh, can come off precautions. But it still has to be done on a case-by-case basis. So um, as folks know, when we're, we review all these cases individually to see if we think that it can be done because we don't want other uh, patients to get infected um, and we don't want, obviously, uh, ourselves and our colleagues to get and how about antibody testing? I know that's a big question. Who should be tested? When should they be tested? And does it infer immunity that they won't get COVID-19 again? So the answers are, we don't know, we don't know, and we don't know. It, it stands to reason that people will develop antibodies in response to having been infected. That's an assumption. It, it's probably true. Uh, we do not know if the current uh, currently available tests we don't know how good they are intrinsically at detecting these antibodies because there's no gold standard. Uh, we don't know the kinetics of when we expect these antibody responses to emerge. Maybe we're just, for all those false negatives, people who we know had confirmed COVID-19 and stole their antibody tests are negative. Maybe we're just testing them too early. Maybe it takes a few more weeks to mount the detectable antibody response. We don't know. And uh, we, we actually don't know yet. Um, we hope that there is immunity conferred by these antibodies. That's the whole rationale of developing a vaccine after all. But there's, there's no proof of that yet. And uh, we don't know that the antibodies that we have for this phase will still be effective months from now if there's a second wave and if that virus, uh, for example, has uh, mutated the epitopes that the uh, antibodies recognize. So these, these are a lot of unknowns and unfortunately we're, we're gonna need time uh, to be able to uh, understand these things better, largely in retrospect. Well, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. But um, again, I really want to thank Dr. Morose for organizing this uh, 
this wonderful educational webinar, and of course, Dr. Flanagan for his leadership. I'd like to thank our panelists for their time and for going above and beyond the call of duty in battling the COVID pandemic. For our participants, if you have additional questions, please email rusk.info at nyulangone.org. And if you put COVID in the subject line, we will try to answer your questions within one to two days. Please look out for the next installment of COVID-19 Conversations powered by Rust Rehabilitation. And please, everybody, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rust at nyulangone.org slash Rust. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.